you could argue that the Big Ten's one of the best, if not the best, conference in the, in the country. We're playing frequently on CBS, ESPN, Big Ten Network, so we're pretty much all games are nationally televised, and you're constantly in the tournament. So I'm like, this is uh, it's such a great opportunity that I really can't pass up. And then when I went to visit Madison, uh, I was sold. You know, such a great college sports town. Um, people just love the Badgers. And, you know, ever since ever since I committed there, I didn't look back. Another season in the books, the podcast featuring European professional athletes who pursue their university degrees at home or in the United States. We'll talk about the ups and the downs, the pros and the cons. We'll hear from each athlete as they talk about their journey through academics and athletics. I'll also be talking to coaches and getting their opinion on the subject as well. I'm your host, Leslie Knight, 11-year veteran in Spain's professional basketball leagues, Liga Femenina 2 and La Liga Endesa. Let's get to it! This week's interviewee speaks multiple languages, was a two-sport athlete growing up, and might have become a CIA agent if it weren't for his more than 6-foot-8-inch frame blowing his cover. Duye Dukin was born in Croatia, but just two months short of his first birthday, he was crossing the Atlantic with his parents, embarking on an adventure that would shape and mold him into the bilingual Badger alum that he is today. It's always fun to meet another Big Ten athlete while playing overseas, even if they went to a place as horrible as Wisconsin. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Truly, there's an immediate connection between Midwesterners, and it's nice to cross paths when in a different country. And from just outside of Chicago, here's Duye. Well, hello, Duye. How's it going? Doing well. Doing well. Appreciate you for having me on. How are things over there? Um, well, you know, Madrid is coming along little by little. Um, I can actually go to the house uh, at certain points during the day now, so I can't complain too much. But uh, what's it like? What's the situation like in Chicago or in Illinois? Uh, it's been interesting, to say the least. Uh, I feel like I've had the same kind of daily routine for the last 10 weeks, um, just waking up, working out, um, and the rest of the time I'll spend either watching Netflix or just hanging with the family. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had very good weather here. It's been like 40s and raining uh, and cold. So it's been very difficult to try and get out and get a workout in outside. But now as we're hitting late May, early June, it should be better. Yeah, today it's actually really hot here. I just went out to get some groceries real quick and it was like I had to stay in the shade because it was so hot. <laughs> so send that, send that this way, please. Well, as it gets hotter over here, and if we still have to stay inside, it's going to be tough, you know, because here in Spain, when it gets really hot, people like to go to the park, sit in the grass, be in the shade, mm -hmm. go to the beach. Um, yeah. But obviously, the summer is going to be a little bit different than the normal summer. Absolutely. So, um, but I wanted to ask you, too, you went from Spain back home kind of at the beginning of this whole thing. I don't remember the exact date. It was March something. Yeah, so I came back uh, March 15th, I believe, because the only reason why I remember is because it was Friday the 13th, and that's, like, always been my lucky day. Don't ask me. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, like, I wore number 13 since I was a junior in high school, and I had, like, some of my best games in my career on Friday the 13th. Oh, funny. Um, 
Yeah, ironically enough. But so we flew back on that Sunday um, and I was joking with my mom because my mom was with me at the time. She was in Madrid just like visiting. Okay. And uh, she was saying, like, if you didn't get a heart attack during those last 24 hours in Madrid, you'll never get one. Like, you're good. <laughs> She's like, I've what? never seen you so stressed out or anything like that. So it was it was a long, crazy experience just in terms of like canceled flights. Not sure if we were going to make it out. Like then the government's talking about shutting down the road, shutting down airspace. Um, and then like we were trying to communicate to um, our airline company. So like United and Lufthansa were like, listen, like we need to get out. Please send us to like split, send us to Croatia, send us to France, send us anywhere. Just get us out of Spain so that we don't get stuck here. Um, right. And like the ladies like, oh, no, no, don't worry. Like we'll fly you on Monday morning. Like they're not going to shut down airspace. We didn't know. Like we were told by like some local family friends. They're like, no, no, no. Like this is serious. Like they're going to close down everything. And I'm like, I'm not risking it. Like especially with my mom, like I'm not going to risk her like putting her in a bad situation. I was like, we need to get out. And after arguing with the people from the airlines for a good like half hour, finally, we found a flight to London uh, the next morning and got out of there. It was a, a long travel day, but we made it home and quarantined and kind of been doing the same since. Mm -hmm. Were the planes packed? Was the airport packed when you traveled? The way that I told it is that when we got to the Madrid airport, it was literally like one of those old Western movies where it's like an old, old town. And you just see that like ball of hay just kind of rolling through the screen. The tumbleweed. <laughs> yeah, the tumbleweed. That's literally what it was. There was nobody. So like the, the Uber that we were in dropped us off at like the very first gate, like the first doors. And uh -huh. they closed down all the doors, but the first one. So we had to walk all the way to the first doors. Um, and once we got in the airport, there was like people sleeping on the ground and masks. Um, and there was probably honestly, maybe a hundred to 200 people in the whole airport. Hmm. Um, so it was a very weird experience. Uh, our plane to London was pretty filled. Then the flight back to Chicago, same thing, pretty, pretty good amount of people. Um, but what shocked me the most was the way London was just like wide open. They had no customs. Like you literally just got in and could walk around like no big deal. And then you come to the U.S. and we had to go through three different stations. So like mm -hmm. the first station you got to, it was, OK, passport control. Where were you? OK, what were you doing? OK, great. Then the second one, they asked you again, what were you doing? Why were you there? How long were you there for? Like business, pleasure, whatever. Um, did you travel to China? Did you travel to Italy? No. Okay. And then the third stop, they measured your temperature. If it was below like a certain point, they're like, okay, you can go. We recommend like a two week quarantine and then you're okay. If it was below or if it was higher than that, then they would send you to like a hospital and do like additional testing. So it was, <laughs> it was a lot, but I'm just as literally, as soon as I walked out of the airport, I was the happiest kid on earth. <laughs> well, I think in London and Great Britain in general, they, they were a little late to the party and they weren't taking it super seriously. Um, but yeah. then Boris Johnson, you know, he got infected and was in the hospital. And so now they've, you know, they've been going for several weeks taking it more seriously. But yeah, I, I can imagine that you, when you flew in there, it was just like every day, you know, just normal. It, literally. And, and that was the craziest part. Like when we got there, you know, when you go through customs, typically you'll have to like give your sheet to somebody or you'll at least have to like wave and say like, I'm going in because what happened to us is, uh, they didn't check our bags all the way through to Chicago. 
Mm. So we had to get all, we had to leave Heathrow, go to baggage claim and then come back into Heathrow. Um, and so when we left the airport, there was nobody at customs. Like there was literally not like a person working. So we literally just walked into the city, no issues, nothing. And, you know, two weeks later, that's when the whole like pandemic hit there. And like, we need to shut everything down and everything. Crazy really, time. Really, really. <laughs> um, but okay, getting into the interview a little bit. If you can remember, uh, tell us about your very first sports memory. My very first one, honestly, would just be the first time I was introduced to like the Bulls practice facility because my dad is an international scout for the Bulls. Um, so when we first moved to the U.S., uh, we lived in like a hotel, basically maybe a block away from the practice facility just until like we found like permanent housing and like got adjusted to the life and everything. So like my first steps I took were at like the practice facility. Like my first like dribbling a ball was at the practice facility. So like uh, it's always like crazy for people to understand like why I love the Bulls and why I love Chicago so much. It's because like I literally like grew up there. So I think like my first memories, honestly, just dribbling the ball with my dad an early morning or a late night, like when it was just closed down and we're just kind of in there um, as like a little, little kid. Um, and my mom, obviously, she was the one with the camera um, and my dad's like, you know, running around with me. So I think that's probably like my first actual memory with basketball. Yeah. What an experience too. I think about your parents coming over because what I read on Wikipedia is that you were like 10 months old when you came over, um, you know, and for your parents to just up and move from their hometown of split and come to the United States. Like what an adjustment, you know, English. I mean, the language barrier, I don't know what their level of English was when they came over, but just adjusting to a new neighborhood, new friends. I mean, everything was so new. Like I'm sure you've talked to your parents about that experience since then, but you know, what, what was that like for them? Yeah. So like it was, it was super, uh, Super interesting, honestly. Um, my dad got a call. Um, I think it was in the er early 1990, um, maybe 91, from Jerry Krause, who was then the Bulls general manager, essentially saying like, "Hey, um, you know, we've we've heard a lot about you. We've heard that you have like contacts in Europe. You've played in a bunch of different uh, countries. Um, more and more players from Europe are starting to come to the states." So we wanted to see if you'd be interested in helping us, you know, bring talent to our team. So at the time, you know, my dad was basically playing like EuroLeague, you know, he didn't know, like the NBA wasn't what it is today then. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea came and he kind of was like, okay, like, yeah, sure. Like I'll help out. Okay. So he did like a little bit of scouting for them here and there and then they got serious about bringing him in and like having him live in Chicago and uh the first finals we ever went to for me was when they played Phoenix uh I actually went to the game uh in Phoenix in Chicago like I traveled to all the finals games and uh after that my dad was like look this is a no-brainer like I cannot not be a part of this like this mm -hmm. is something so special like we can't pass this up um, so when we came here, um, my mom was a lawyer back in Croatia, so her English and she studied in England as well. So her English was good. Okay. Um, my dad's was improving. Um, 
but yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was definitely an adjustment, you know, and they thanked me a lot because a lot of the friends and like family friends that we've made over the years is thanks to me because of sports, because you play soccer as a kid, basketball as a kid. And then all the parents are standing together, watching the games, commenting and everything. And so that's kind of where I've just built like the bonds that I have to, to this day with a bunch of my friends, like those early friendships that started. Um, and you know, that's kind of how we got acclimated to the life. And I think ever since then, um, you know, even they kind of consider Chicago now home. Right. Well, they've been here for what now, 28 years. Yeah. So it's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. I just, I just put myself, I mean, granted I'm living now in Madrid, right? So I've kind of transplanted myself, but thanks to playing on a team, I had a lot of friends and I feel like I've I've made a home here, but I just think about your mom and your dad coming all the way over, not knowing anybody. But uh, so obviously you grew up in a sports oriented family. Um, Your dad played professionally overseas for what, 15 years or something like that. Yep. Um, Was your mom, was she into sports at all? Yeah. So she was a swimmer, but she, she stopped, I think right after college, like she's still like an avid swimmer. Whenever we go on like vacation and stuff, like as soon as we get near the water, she's gone for like two hours. You won't see her. Mm-hmm. She's just in the water swimming. So uh, athletics and being physically active have kind of always been a hot trend in our family, I'll say. Sure. Um, so when would you say you started taking basketball seriously? Because, I mean, I'm sure you loved it ever since you were little, but you also played soccer. Yeah. For me, honestly, I always took basketball seriously, but I think right around my sophomore year of high school I realized I could make something of it Mm -hmm. um that's when I kind of started to get attention from uh, college coaches and they started calling saying they're interested uh, about me potentially playing basketball and at that point I was like okay like if I'm gonna make something of this I'm cutting I'm cutting soccer out like I need to fully devote my time to basketball and so when I was like 15 yeah 14 15 I basically that was my last year playing soccer and I just focused on basketball. And pretty much ever since then, uh, it's been all basketball. When would you say you stopped growing? Uh, I think my last year growing was my freshman freshman year of college or sophomore year of college. Okay, yeah. so when you were 14, 15 playing soccer, I'm assuming you were probably the tallest guy on the yeah, team. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. I was definitely the tallest kid. Um, but the, the funny thing, too, is like with my growth spurts, I never really had like a crazy one year growth spurt. It was just always consistently growing. Um, And, you know, like I was always among the taller kids, but then like a lot of these kids here that I grew up with peaked in like eighth and freshman year. So they're like all taller than me. Like, Oh, dude, what's wrong? You're not the tallest (laughs) kid anymore. And then you gave it two years and I'm like back to looking down at them. Uh, yeah. so it was, it was funny how it worked out, but, um, like I started my, I think freshman year at like five ten, and I left six, seven. Wow. Well, yeah. if it was gradual, I mean, that's, that's probably the best, right? Because then your body didn't suffer. You probably didn't have growing pains as other kids do. Yeah, no, I was, I was super fortunate. I didn't have any growing pains. My biggest issue was just catching up with my body. So like uh-huh. catching up with my limbs and like realizing how big I was and <laughs> getting, getting like my, my uh, coordination. My, exactly. Exactly. So like, I wouldn't say that I was uncoordinated. It was just more so I was like gangly. Like I was super, super long and thin. So uh-huh. I, I could, I could move quick and everything, but the problem was I was frail. Cause I wasn't really trying to lift too much so that I was growing. 
So I was like, I, I'm not going to like mess with my growth plates or anything like that. So really the first time I really started to like lift and stuff was probably like my senior year of, of high school going into my like freshman year of college. Wow. That must have been a bit of a shock when you got to college. I mean, <laughs> Division One lifting programs are no joke. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, I think I came to college at like 190, 67, like 190. Oh, and man. By the time freshman summer ended, I was at like 205 already. Right. Yeah. So they were like, yeah, you're, you're, you cannot play under 205. Like, it is not possible. I was like, okay. And like, so I'm just eating, 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 stuffing my face. Like, yeah, don't get me wrong. I wasn't eating like crap, but it was like, yeah. you had to, you had to really, you know, put in the time to make sure that you could like put on weight. Right. Yeah. I had teammates in college that needed to gain weight or the coaches wanted them to gain weight and they were drinking a bunch of muscle milk and they were trying so hard, but a lot of times their metabolism was so high that it really just didn't work. Yeah. Um, and you hear stories about like Michael Phelps and how much he had to eat in order to maintain, you know? So for a guy that's, for a guy that's six, seven or six, nine, whatever, like that's a lot of food, <laughs> especially if it's healthy food, because if it's healthy food, you have to eat even more. So before we move on, um, because sure. I love, because I love cultures and I love languages and food and whatnot. And because I myself am in a what do you want to call it? Bicultural relationship or, uh, okay. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I'm just curious, like growing up in Deerfield, Illinois, your parents both being from Croatia, did they raise you with like Croatian traditions, food language, or were they like, okay, we're going to speak English. We're going to do the American thing. Um, what was that kind of process like? So it's funny you say that when it was just the three of us, it was all Croatian. Like we spoke Croatian at home. My mom is a really, I have to say an incredible cook. She can pretty much anything you ask for, she can do. Um, so like, I would say, when, especially when we came here, she focused on a lot of like specialties from, from like split and like our hometown. Um, and like the closest comparison I would say to our food would be like Italian food. Mm -hmm. Um, because obviously we're so close geographically. So a lot of our ideas came from them, their ideas came from us. Mediterranean. Um, exactly. So it, it's like the Mediterranean cuisine. So, you know, growing up, I, that's pretty much what I grew up on. You know, mom would like cook up a bunch of food. I would have so much food for like lunch and kids like, Oh, what did you have? Like, what'd your mom make today? So it became <laughs> like a, a running joke. They're always trying to figure out what mom was cooking. Um, but as far as at home, uh, it's actually pretty ironic. So up until I was about maybe four or five, I would go to like preschool during the day and speak English. And then I would come home and speak Croatian with my parents. And so growing up, it kind of, it was tough for me to distinguish the two and realize mm -hmm. when I'm speaking what. So it wasn't that I had a lisp, but I would like jumble the two a lot mm -hmm. and then I like my mom doesn't even remember either what happened, but something just clicked. And from that moment on, I just went a hundred miles an hour in Croatian, hundred miles an hour in English. And it was just like, no stopping me. And it got to the point where, um, when, when Tony Kukoc came to the bulls, um, his son, we basically grew up together. He's six months younger than me. We went to the same preschool. So when he first came to the States and, and, uh, whatnot, he was in a different classroom, like next door. And his, his English wasn't great. So they would bring me in to class 
to explain something to them. And then they would bring me back to my class. <laughs> <laughs> like I was five years old, like six years old. Oh, like a kid. Like a kid oh my kid. goodness. Yeah, yeah. That's so neat though. I mean, what a, what a luxury and what a just opportunity. Like when I see children that are able to just go back and forth between two languages and you can't even tell that they have an accent. I just think, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And and that's the craziest part too. I I have to give credit to my parents for that. Um, You know, people ask me even to this day, when I go back to Croatia, um, they're like, how is it possible that you speak so well? Like you literally speak like you're from split. You have a Dalmatian accent. Like you literally speak like you're from there. Like, but you've never lived here. I was like, honestly, I have no idea. I was like, <laughs> I, do, I do WhatsApp a lot with my family, um, like phone calls, but really it's just like talking at home and that's pretty much it. So, so I have to give them credit. So even now when you're at home, do you and your mom and your dad speak in Croatian? It depends. Um, like, I would say the last maybe 10, 12 years, my like parents were kind of pushing English more just so like it could benefit them because okay. they were both working, obviously speaking English all the time. So like we need to work on it. We want to improve that. Da, 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 da. But now it's kind of gotten to the point where like, you know, if we find a passionate topic that they really have something to say, then it's Croatian. Then it's like, <laughs> I got to, I got to stick to my roots. I got to say everything I need to say. And I'm going to say it in Croatian. Yeah. And when you type to your, when you send WhatsApp messages to your family, obviously you have to change the alphabet, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. um, that's actually how I learned to read and write in Croatian. I taught myself hmm. um, is that like I could speak it, but I was never physically taught how to read or write. So right. what I would do is every summer when we were there, I would buy, my parents would buy the newspaper. I would take the sports section and I would just read like the headlines and then I would read the articles. And so slowly but surely, oh, like light bulbs would just go off. Okay, this is this word. This is this word. This is this word. And then the other thing that helped me was physically like texting. You know, with like the old phones when you have to press like the number two, three times to get C the number five, like four times or three times to get J or whatever. So that really helped me a lot because like, even to this day, people ask me like, why do you text so properly? Because that's how I learned. Like I would sound out every word. So every syllable and everything is included. Whereas, you know, friends will, they'll add like, you know, what up, how you doing or something like that in English. Well, I'm going to ask you like, hello, how are you? (laughs) So it's like, that's, that's how I taught myself. And then like in WhatsApp, I'll just change the um, keyboard and then I type in Croatian and that's pretty much it. Well, what a wonderful place to be from because Split is now on like the international radar of places to go and visit. I mean, not necessarily right now, but like I haven't been to Croatia. I have a friend that's from Croatia and she's always telling me, you know, Leslie, you have to come and you have to see this place. And you know, it's kind of like this new gem on the Mediterranean. No, 100%. I think, um, you know, growing up, I told people all the time, I was like, you guys got to check it out. But you know how a lot of Americans honestly can be very shallow minded when it comes to different things, different cultures. So everybody kind of shut down the idea that like Croatia, like what is that in Asia? Like, what am I going to go there for? <laughs> and so you get to college, you get to college and all my friends start doing study abroad. And they're like, oh, I'm going to Croatia. Oh, I'm going to Croatia. They go two, three days. I get phone calls. Do you? How did you leave this place? Like, why did you leave? What are you thinking? This is the most beautiful, beautiful place ever. Like, I can't wait to go back. I was like, I told you guys, but you wouldn't listen. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so now everybody's like slowly starting to figure it out. They all want to go back. Um, you know, it's just, a, it's honestly a great place, uh, especially during the summertime between, you know, late May and middle to late September. Um, I, I honestly don't think you'll be able to find a better place with um, great beaches, history, but the food also mm-hmm. and like a, at like a reasonable price too. Right. So. Um, and one more question about your childhood. Sure. How how did people uh, learn your name? Because I'm sure like <laughs> <laughs> you go to class and they're like taking roll Whoa. call. And I'm sure your teachers had such a hard time. And every new person that you met looked at the, you know, the phonetics of your name or how they would. <laughs> and they were just like me when I met you. Like, I didn't know how to say your name. I think I asked 100%. you multiple times. Yeah. So um, honestly, growing up, it was pretty, I don't want to say annoying but it was just frustrating yeah because it was every time we had a substitute teacher they would butcher it and it became like a running joke from like first until like third grade kids would just like start giggling before my name was even called because they (laughs) knew that they would mispronounce it or say something so i just kind of sat there i laughed it off whatever i was like it's do yay what i started doing when i got older is i would memorize my name like in the alphabet so as soon as they called the person before me I would just raise my hand. I'd be like, it's do yay. Just don't even try. It's do yay. <laughs> and, and so I avoided any mispronunciation, whatever. It's like, wow, okay, thank you. I was not going to say that. I was like, I know that's why I raised my hand. <laughs> so in Croatia, do you guys, you guys just have a first name and a last name. Do you have a middle name? Uh, you can, but I, I never got one. Like I have a um, baptized, I had um, a name, like a middle name, but we don't use it on any of my like documentation or anything like that. Okay. And it's just the one last name. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Similar to Italian probably, but still different from Spain. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. So you are a sophomore in high school. You're starting to get calls. How did you decide on going to Wisconsin? So basically um, I'm an only child. I'm super close to my parents. Um, You know, I would consider them to be like my some of my best friends among, um, among them, you know, with the bond that we've built over the years and how much I trust them, how much they've been there for me. Um, so I think that definitely weighed heavy on me as far as picking some, somewhere that was somewhat close to home, but -hmm. at the same time, far enough that I didn't feel like, Oh, they're close or like they're on my back or something like that. So for me, um, it was actually, Uh, I was looking at them. I was looking at New Mexico. I was looking at Arizona State. And then like a school that came late into the mix with Virginia, right when Tony Bennett got there. Um, So Tony was actually one of the first coaches to ever recruit me, but it was when he was at Washington State. And then he ended up moving to Virginia, but he like called me on like a Thursday and I was planning on committing that Monday. And mm-hmm. he's like, hey, can we can, can we get you to come fly down for the weekend, check it out, and we can sign the papers on Monday, boom, boom. I'm like, coach, listen, I love you. I really appreciate everything you've done. Like, you were the first one to give me a chance, everything. But I was like, I've been with all these other schools so far down this road, getting to know them, getting to know the programs and all that. And so, you know, when it came down to it, I felt like Wisconsin was just the best opportunity for me, number one, to get a great education. Because, you know, God forbid, I didn't know if I was going to get an injury or what would happen. I wanted to have a backup plan. So I knew that they had great academics that I could kind of have as a backup plan. But then basketball wise, you know, uh, you could argue that the Big Ten's one of the best, if not the best conference in the, in the country. We're playing frequently on CBS, ESPN, Big Ten Network. So we're 
pretty much all games are nationally televised and you're constantly in the tournament. So I'm like, this is uh, it's such a great opportunity that I really can't pass up. And then when I went to visit Madison, uh, I was sold, you know, such a great college sports town. Uh, people just love the Badgers. And, you know, ever since ever since I committed there, I didn't look back. I've been there a couple times. I mean, when we would go play, we didn't have that much time to walk around and see things. A friend of mine actually had her bachelorette party there because she went to Wisconsin. She's from Minnesota. But yeah, State Street. Great choice. Great choice. <laughs> we were young, you know, but State Street was awesome. Um, the lake. I mean, it's just a really neat kind of mix of an environment. So I, I can understand why you would want to go there. Plus the basketball. Exactly. Exactly. It, it really worked out great. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't change it for the world. I got asked a couple times, you know. Obviously, I didn't I didn't play as much as, you know, every kid envisions, you know, every kid envisions being a star player and everything like that. Reality hit me kind of hard when I got there. I really didn't play until my redshirt junior year was when I first started getting like significant minutes. And, you know, after that year, I was like, you know what, if I want to play pro, I need to go somewhere else. Like I need to transfer and, you know, be able to put up numbers so I can put myself in a good position to know, you know, get a job in Europe or get a job in the NBA or something like that. That was like kind of my thought my whole junior year. And we ended up going to the final four that year. And I had one of my best games in the final four. And I'm just like, you know what? And everybody was coming back the following year. I was like, this is way too special. I was like, if I leave, it's going to cause like a chemistry issue. We're not going to be as good. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to pass up the opportunity to do, to do something special. Fortunately for us, we were able to do something special for not just like the team and, and bas- Wisconsin basketball, but I think Wisconsin as a whole, kind of putting them on the map. Man, I, I mean, I've never, the farthest I ever got was the Sweet 16, but playing in the final four on that stage and getting, you know, minutes and being able to contribute, I cannot even imagine what that must have been like. Who was that game against? So my first year, ironically, both years in the final four, we played against Kentucky. The first okay. year, uh, the first year we were in Dallas at Jerry World, and we actually set the record for the most people to physically watch a game in person ever in history it was wow. like 70 it was like seventy nine thousand people or something like that um so it was absolutely insane that experience was, alone in itself was you know crazy you know because sundays you know you're watching the cowboys playing the texans or the the giants and then here you are on a random saturday night in april and you're playing basketball there like everybody's there to watch you guys right um, so it was super surreal and like especially the first time i think it was a more so like excitement like slash can't believe we're actually here whereas our senior year it was like a whole business approach it's like look until we get to the national championship we are not satisfied like, we want to win it all we know we can and until we do that like there's going to be no sense of satisfaction so like once once we got to the final four yeah we celebrated we were happy but it wasn't like what it was the first time it was mm-hmm. more so like an expectation. And so the second time we played Kentucky again, first time we lost, second time we beat them. Uh, they were like 38-0 at that point. Like people were saying, oh, would they beat the 96 Bulls? Would they beat this team, that team? And we ended up beating them and then lost to Duke in the finals by five, five or four. So that was that was our that was the end of my college run. Unreal. So I got to ask, what was it like being a student at 
you know, Madison and having to perform at this high level. And you guys, I mean, it was probably stressful, um, but you were also balancing your studies. What was that like? Because I know on the men's side, I was speaking with Mike Bruzewitz a couple of weeks ago or a month ago now. And when you're at that high level, and especially on the men's side, like it is basketball, basketball, basketball. How did you maintain that balance with your academics? So for me, like that was one of the biggest things that I took away from college is knowing how to organize my time. And that's one thing that I wanted to focus on learning at a young age, especially like when I was a freshman, because like my first couple months, I'll be honest, I struggled. I think everybody does because you just, you get so many different things thrown at you that you've never seen before that you've never had to experience. And you're just like trying to take it all in stride, but also you get everything done. So I think, you know, by the time I reached, you know, upperclassman status, I had it all down pat. And, you know, especially when we started leaving for the tournament and stuff like that, I was very fortunate that all my teachers were very understanding with the situation that I was in. So I would still get all of my work done. We would have one of our academic advisors travel on the road with us. We would go to the tournament. So we would have like mandatory one hour study days where we would like take the let's say conference room that we would have meals and like film in and it would just be study hall you would have study hall for like an hour you know some people would use it more if they had more some people would you know just be in there just to be in there and then get out uh depending on like obviously what your major was how much school if you had what age you were if you were a senior you were mentally checked out at that point and whatnot but you know i think that was one of the, I have to give credit to our academic advisors. They did a great job of staying on top of things, especially for the ones that didn't do a great job of organizing their time because, you know, they had to administer the tests. It, it's definitely difficult, but I think the teachers that I dealt with were understanding of our position that we were in. So, you know, they're like, don't listen, don't worry, take care of what you need to take care of. When you get back, we can talk and we'll figure it out. So like that was the situation that I had a couple of times. Uh, where they just, you know, delayed a paper or delayed a test. Other times I had teachers who were just like, listen, you know, I, I understand the position that you're in, but you need to take care of our classwork. It doesn't make you any different from anybody else, which I completely respect. I didn't argue it. I was like, I got you. I'll get it done. And that was that. So I think, you know, uh, time management was number one. And I was able to learn that at a, at a young age in college. And it helped me moving forward. Um, before you got to college or even in your freshman year, did you know that you wanted to be an international studies major? So no, growing up, I wanted to be like an oceanographer or flash like a forensic scientist. I love like CSI and like criminal minds, and, like Jack Bauer in 24. That stuff was fascinating to me. Like I loved it. And so I always wanted to do something like that. And I remember as a kid, uh, there was like a, can't remember it was some leadership program that I went in like eighth grade to like DC for a week mm -hmm. where you studied kind of forensic science and all this and I'll never forget when I was like talking to my mom about it, I was like yeah you know I would love to like work in the CIA FBI and she's like do you I don't think there's many six seven six eight FBI CIA agents I was like you know what mom that's a good point <laughs> Granted, this was when I was like 5'10". Like, that was how tall they were, they were predicting me to be. So she's like, if you grow up to be that tall, I don't think you can have that job. It's like, you bring up a good point. And then when you I got just to stick out a little bit, you know, a little bit, exactly. just a little bit, <laughs> a, little, a little bit. And so when I got to Wisconsin, I really had no idea. I was like, what do I want to do? Um, my first initial idea was doing international business. 
But unfortunately, at Wisconsin, the requirements were something along the lines of having to do a semester abroad. And with basketball, I couldn't do that. So the next best option that was similar to it was international studies. All right. And then you said before you were already thinking in your junior year or your redshirt junior year that you wanted to continue your career after college. What was that process like? Because I know that you you entered the draft in 2015, I think it was. Yep. And and you went undrafted. So then what happened after that? Yeah. So obviously every kid has aspirations of playing professionally. Um, I didn't know how possible it was until I got to college. And once I got older and realized like the success that we were having and me being a part of it, that kind of was like a reality check. Like, okay, you could do something. So for me, when I graduated, or I shouldn't say graduate, when I did, when I completed my fifth year, so I was in grad school at the time. So I kind of stopped short. I had like three classes left to finish my master's, but I was like, I'll come back and I'll finish that at a later date. So when the season ended, I went back to Chicago, started training immediately. I think I had a total of maybe 10, 11 NBA workouts that I went around for different cities. I didn't know, honestly, what to expect. I had a couple, I had two different teams calling saying like, you know, potentially we'll take you in the second round. Da, 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 da. I, I, my, my initial thought going into the whole process, like even speaking with my agent, um, I actually picked the Spanish agent when I first, my first agent ever was a Spanish agent. And I was like, listen, uh, I want to go play in Spain. Uh, I think Spain is going to be the best for me as far as development and and showing people that, you know, I can play in the NBA because I thought, you know, averaging 18 to 20 minutes at Wisconsin, averaging four points a game is not going to get you to the NBA. I was like, there's just realistically no way. I was like, I don't have enough game film and I don't think people have seen me enough to get me to that point. And so the whole time in the back of my mind, I was like, Spain, 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 Spain. Well, um, I get a phone call after the draft and my agent's like, listen, we have like four or five teams that are calling. They're interested in wanting you to join their summer league team. And there was one team in particular that was pretty adamant on, you know, having my services and saying that they were interested. And that was Sacramento. So what I didn't know until like a later date is that they apparently tried to trade for a pick in the second round to take me, but like the pick was too expensive or like the team was looking for too much money. So they just said, forget it. So I end up going to summer league with them. They're like, look, we can't guarantee you minutes. We can't guarantee you anything, but we're just going to say we're interested in you. We like what you've done in our pre-draft workout. We want to take a closer look. That was all I needed. I was like, look, I wanted to play summer league anyway. I didn't know what was going to happen. And after my second or third game, my agent calls. like, listen, they're going to offer you a contract. I'm like what? And he's like, yeah, he's like, they're going to offer you a deal. Like they want you to be like a part of their team this year. And like when they said that, when my agent told me that, I'm like, it was kind of like surreal. I'll never forget. I was in my hotel room in Vegas, like looking out the window and I'm like trying to process it. I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, he's like, they want to make, they, they think you're like, you're a, you're a good project. You'll play majority in the G league, but you know, they want you to come play and, and see you develop essentially. But they like the coach loves you, thinks you've done a great job thus far. And you know, they want to, they want to have you be part of the team. From that moment on, it was like, boom, just hit the ground running. And um, I think Summer League finished. We kept everything hush-hush. We are like, they're like, listen, don't talk about anything. Like, don't say anything yet for sure. And I think middle of July uh, is when I flew out to Sacramento. I had to pass, like, a, a physical. 
and then do like a physical in-person signing, talk to the media. And that's like when it became official. Wow. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't imagine what that feeling would be like, because you're right. It's every kid's dream, right. To, to get to the NBA and then to see that actually come to fruition. What, I mean, I'm sure you remember your first game that you got in. Yeah. So what, what was going through your mind? I'm sure your parents were there. So ironically enough, they weren't there. That was like, that was probably like the one milestone in my career that they weren't there for. It was the very last game of the season we were playing in Houston and Houston needed to win. Houston had like James Harden, uh, Dwight Howard, Trevor Reza, Patrick Beverly. They had like their whole basically squad and they needed to beat us in order to sneak into the playoffs and get like an eight seed, I think at the time. So, you know, I'm like, great. This is going to be my first time playing an NBA game. Like I'm excited. I'm nervous, like butterflies and everything. And I'll never forget. Like I checked in, like, obviously, you know, the PA system announces your name and you're like looking around. I'm like, whoa, it's real life. <laughs> <laughs> That's my name. Like, and they said it correctly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the, the, the funniest part, I'll never forget. I had a teammate like look at me and like, yo, why are you smiling so much? I'm like, dude, because I dreamed about this as a kid and like it's here. And he's like, all right, all right, I get it. But he's like, come on, focus on the game. I was like, oh, I'm just happy. <laughs> yeah. So. It was it was honestly great. Um, so we were in Houston. We had that one uh, one last game, and that was the you know the game that I played in. Um, it was the type of thing where once the game ended, I had so much nerves throughout. I know I obviously didn't play great or what I was capable of. So I was like, damn, I wish we'd have had one more game or like a couple more, just because I finally like let all those first game jitters out. And I was like, now I felt comfortable and like wanted to play more. That was the first game jitters and the first game uh, experience for me. Um, okay. So after Sacramento, you kind of bounced around a little bit with the G league and different teams. Um, what is that experience like? How do you stay motivated? How do you, I mean, I'm just thinking like the G league, I'm assuming everybody is out there kind of to get their own or to show what they can do. And so maybe I'm assuming it's not necessarily team basketball. I don't know. But to have to go out and prove yourself and, you know, compete every night in hopes that a team will call you and then, you know, you're getting moved to this city and then you're getting asked to this team. And I don't know, it's got to be a a difficult situation to manage. It was. Honestly, it was very difficult, Um, especially like you said, you know, it's not a very team organized game. Uh, A lot of people think with the mentality, oh, if I drop 40, I'm going to get called up. But the reality of it is, okay. They have, like the NBA has Kevin Durant's, they have Kyrie Irving's, they have uh, LeBron James, they have Paul George's. They don't need you to score 40. If they call you up, they need you to hit a wide open three, get a defensive rebound, take a charge, like just little things. Because when you get called up, they'll put you in for five, maybe six minutes. That's it. Like mm-hmm. if you if you, if you you get hot or something like that, they might push you a little bit more. But when you get that 10-day contract, you're really not going to be playing much more than that unless – it's for a, I don't want to say bad team, but a struggling team that doesn't have a lot of wins and they want to see where you're at. So they'll give you more minutes to see if they can, like, if they want to extend you for the rest of the season. So for me, um, it was definitely a difficult position. Uh, I think because the G League itself is dominated by point guards and bigs because everything is, you know, oriented around the pick and roll. Okay. Uh, when, when plays don't work out, it's pick and roll. Um, so the ball is in the point guards and the guards hands 95% of the time. 
Um, I think the other thing too is I was fortunate to have the opportunity to be in some good organizations where winning was a priority, not individual success. And the faster that players understood that, the better we were. And the better we were, the more individual success people had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it really is a grind. Uh, I don't think people understand how difficult travel is, how difficult, you know, meals and just life in general. Because for for my first for two years, uh, obviously, I had an NBA paycheck and I had a um, European paycheck to my name. So I was OK. But you have guys in the league that have like a, a wife and a kid and they're making $19,000 a year. And it's like playing, how in you, playing in the G league and you play from, you know, November to end of March. How do you make money? How do you support your family the rest of the time? So, you know, that was the one thing that I always like respected about those guys is like, it's really a grind. You need to be strong mentally, physically, but most of all, like your family needs to be on board with you 100%. Cause if they're not on board, it's, it is not fun and it's not easy. Um, so I think, you know, it, it definitely taught me a lot um, going through that process, but I think they've also done a great job of improving it over the years. You know, I, I saw even in my three years that I spent there, how they've slowly made upgrades, you know, as far as taking it more seriously, like with, with coaches, um, putting more attention as far as development there, travel, uh, obviously pay has gone up as well. So it's, it's getting better obviously. And then with this recent trend of high school players deciding to go to the G league and not go to college, I think that's going to, uh, only benefit it more. Okay. So, I didn't know that players were doing that. Yeah. So it just recently, yeah, it recently became a trend. I think last year was the first year, uh, a kid from, I think it was from Chicago. He was committed to, uh, Syracuse. And he ends up decommitting and he's like, I'm going to go to the G League. Decides to go to the G League. He gets sponsored by, I think, Puma or something like that. Has an okay, like, good year. He's a young kid playing against, like, grown men. It's understandable. Like, he had a lot of growing pains. But he ended up getting drafted, I think, late first round. And now he's, like, in the NBA. And so um, a bunch of kids now, top-level talent, are thinking, you know, huh, maybe I should do that. I can make money for my family. I can maybe get sponsorships and I don't have to go to college and get like treated like a college kid. So I'll try this route. And then what the Julie decided to do is what I thought was insane, but you know, this is how they're going to market it. They're giving certain amount of players who from high school decide to go to the G league. I think you get like 125 K for that one year. Hmm. Whereas everybody else who's like, could have been like a four year starter in college, unbelievable player just wasn't good enough to make it to the NBA they're in the G league now and they're making like 25 and these kids who have never played a college game or a pro game off the bat are making 125 just off of rankings. Wow. So it's, it's an interesting process. It really is. Do I agree with it? No. Do I see the reasoning behind it? Yes. Because they're trying to bring popularity because realistically there's no fans at games. You get maybe 200, 300 fans at some locations at other locations, you know, it's a packed arena. It's a home for an environment and all that. So I think they're just trying to uh, gain more attention and really make it more into like a developmental league. Okay. Um, yeah. Well then after you play what your three years in the G league and yep. then you decide, I want to, I want to try the Spain thing. 
Yeah. So actually, uh, I don't know if I think people know that. So after I got done in Sacramento, I went to Croatia and I played in Croatia for six months, played from, I think, November to like early February, um, got out of the contract there. It wasn't what they promised or what I thought it was going to be and came back to the States, finished out in the D league. And then the following two years I played in the G league. And then this past year I was like, you know what, I need to go to Spain and try something else. And the biggest reasoning behind me going to Europe is just, I missed the, the feeling of playing in like important games, you know, just like having fans, like, having a feeling like you were you were a part of something and in the G League you don't really get that feeling um like yeah you know you'll get your home court fans the 200 300 loyal people but like running out in the whizzing center with 7,000 fans like it's a whole different experience like granted you know we didn't have a great year but the crowd support was unbelievable every road game we had it really felt like a road game and that's the thing that I miss like that pressure that that feeling of a big game, the importance, like, oh, we need to win this to stay in the league. We need to win this to make the playoffs. Um, and the biggest thing, too, is I just felt like playing in Spain, playing in Europe would suit me better because it's a more team-oriented game. You need to use your head, like, play with your IQ. Um, and I felt like that suited me better. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to give it a try this year. Um, and hopefully, you know, it can be something beneficial for the future. You had been in Spain before because I think you played on the Croatian national team and you guys played in Bilbao. Um, And then obviously you you had summers and vacation in in Croatia. But this past year in Spain, were there any cultural shocks or um, adjustments that you felt like you had to make or that you were kind of surprised or thought were way different from back in the U.S.? The number one thing is just the mentality of like, just everything being so laid back. That was the number one thing I had to get adjusted to the, uh, you know, mañana, mañana, no te preocupes. We'll take care of it tomorrow. It'll be the next day. Ah, no, this, that, like just the, the idea of like how much slower some things moved as far as operations, you know, the idea of a siesta from two to five, um, like nobody working shops, not being open, um and things like that and then i think the biggest thing for me so obviously i think you can relate you know as being an athlete so many times you get caught in the situation of having late practices looking for food late at night and in madrid it's like everything is open late so i was literally in heaven like when i signed i had no idea i'm like where am i gonna eat i got my apartment i'm like okay what is gonna be open at like 10 o'clock at night 10 30 and I remember the first day I like, got in the locker room and I like, pop open Deliveroo and it's just like, whoosh. I was like, whoa, <laughs> okay, I got options. <laughs> right. So I think that was like the biggest um, surprise for me. And I think the other thing too that surprised me about Spain is how little people spoke English. And so it benefited me in the sense that it really forced me to improve and work on my Spanish which Mm -hmm. I wanted to do already coming over here. But I think people's inability to speak English only made you try harder to communicate in Spanish, to get help, to get help or order things or or get something. So I think those were kind of like the three, four main points that I like had to adjust to in Spain. Did you uh, study Spanish in high school or in college at all? Yeah. So I, (laughs) another reason like European parents, um, I had, 
Croatian and English down at this point. And I think in like third or fourth grade, I had a uh, soccer teammate whose parents wanted him to start learning Spanish as well. So we started doing private lessons. It was me, him and his sister. And we did private lessons for, I think, maybe two years. No, sorry. It was in fourth and fifth grade. And then in sixth grade, we had to learn Spanish as part of like the school curriculum. So I think sixth, seventh and eighth grade, we did it. Um, and then I did it in high school and then I did it for one, maybe two years in, in college. I still regret to this day. If I would have taken one more class, I would have had a minor in Spanish. So I, I messed that up, but it is what it is. Um, so that was realistically, I think my sophomore year of college would have been the last time that I like actually studied and like spoke Spanish on like a somewhat daily basis. Yeah. Well, it brushed off on you, rubbed off on you, and you did pretty well. I mean, I yeah. was impressed. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. No, I think uh, I was I was fortunate, like I said, that my parents pushed Croatian on me early because I was able to pick up other languages pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I came to Spain, it was kind of like a um, like a refresher. Everything slowly started to come back as I heard, you know, people talking in restaurants, people talking in uh, stores, then like when coaches were giving directions, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. I was like, oh, okay, okay. Like it's starting to come back. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, it was cool. Like I really, really enjoyed the experience of like diversifying myself culturally this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've heard that, I don't know if this is true, but I can kind of understand the logic that people who speak Serbian or Croatian or that come from a Eastern Europe that have these languages that are so difficult and they have so many different sounds and vowels and letters that it ends up helping them learn other languages because other languages are usually easier. I honestly never thought about it that way, but the first time I kind of had that reality of realizing how hard Croatian is to learn is when uh, a teammate of mine who was playing, a college teammate of mine who was playing in Jalgiris this year uh, was learning Lithuanian. And so I would like FaceTime him and he'd be telling me, oh, you know, today we're doing this, this and this. I'm like, okay, well, this is like a pretty tough language to learn. He's like, yeah, man, it's freaking crazy. Like when you're saying like I'm doing something, it's a different ending. When you're doing something, it's a different ending. When he or she is doing something, it's a different ending. But then like you have to change the vowel you have to, or you have to change the verb, like all these different changes. Like it's so complicated. And he's like, how is it in Croatian? And I like thought about it for a second and I'm like, oh, Croatian's easier. And then he's like, well, what do you guys do? And I'm like thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. It's the same freaking thing. And I was like, never mind. I was like, we have the same thing. Forget it. My bad. And then at that point I realized, I was like, dang, like it really is so complicated. And I remember like talking to all my Croatian friends, like, wow, English is so much easier to learn than like Croatian was for us. Like, it's crazy. It's so Mm -hmm. much more basic. Um, so I definitely agree with that. I didn't really realize that until this year. So, you know, I feel bad for all the people trying to learn Serbian, (laughs) but, or, or the Eastern European languages, but, um, I think they definitely come in handy. Um, you know, when it comes to learning something else down the road. Um, okay. So this podcast is called another season in the books and kind of talks about another season come and gone. And then it also talks about another season playing and studying, When you think about the differences between the European system and the American system, are there any differences that really stand out to you when you play with younger European guys on your team? Do you ever kind of look at them and just think, huh, 
maybe they should go try studying at the in the US and then they can play and study at the same time or I think it's really hard. It's got to be really hard for these younger guys to be trying to finish their high school degree, but at the same time, they're playing with the ACB top team and they're having to practice mornings and evenings. Um, how do you see the two systems? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely very difficult. I think school is kind of like an afterthought in Europe when you get to that point of athletic success, when you're really on like a high level. Um, and you're a young kid and you have the opportunity to play on, you know, a top level ACB team or wherever you are. But it's funny you mentioned that because I literally had a couple different talks with some of our young kids about potentially coming to the States. Two of them actually mentioned that they were getting recruited in the past, but, you know, whether it was contractual obligations or whatnot, they just decided against it. As more Americans joined us on Estudiantes, I remember talking to Phil about it and we're like, yo, like he could literally be such a great four-year college player. Like it would be great for him. Like it doesn't mean, you know, he's going to go to the NBA, but like I think the college experience itself is something so special and unlike any other that kids over there really get nothing like it. Yeah, you know, pro games are crazy. Like, it's the best environment. It's better than the NBA as far as fan support and all that. But college, man, there's nothing like it. You know, when you have, when you go to class, you you have a bunch of students, uh, you know, working on group projects, whatever. You go to a game that night and they're sitting front row screaming their heads off, supporting you. Like, there's nothing like that. And I think, like, the bond that you create with your college teammates, with your teams, with students, uh, it's just something special. And so that's something that, you know, I tried to teach these kids. They're like, oh, you know, tell me about your experience. So I would like pull up videos of like when I went to football games or like basketball games, I'm like this is all for like you guys. Like, yeah. And like, oh my God, this is insane. Like, this is crazy. And then they're like, okay, well, how did you balance school and all that? So, you know, it's, it's interesting to me. I think it's very evident that in Europe, they put a higher emphasis on sports than they do in school because a lot of players over there are have a higher IQ. Like we might not be Europeans might not be necessarily as gifted athletically or physically, but for what we lack there, we make up for with our brains. That's where you can definitely see an evident difference. Whereas here, you know, it's get an education, play sports, you know, school is still very important. Like you need to be able to balance both. If, if I'm going to, if I'm going to raise a kid, you know, I, I'm planning to, um, I would ideally like to put them like in schools here and experience that college system. And then, you know, God willingly, you know, he can play pro wherever, whether it's Europe, NBA, or, you know, if he's a soccer player, go play overseas. So, um, why do you think that Europeans tend to have a higher basketball IQ? Um, I think about it and I know in, in Spain, at least, and I'm sure in other countries, the coaches have to go through courses and it's not like it's necessarily easy in, in Spain, you have to do like a level zero, one, two. And then if you want to be a professional coach, you have to do the third level course. And I've seen younger kids during their practices and they're learning some pretty cool things that I think back when I was young, I did not learn any of that. The footwork, um, the different moves the penetration and passing, but why do you think the basketball IQ is just higher? I think there's a bigger stress on skill work and skill development overseas than there is here. Um, I think, 
for me personally, I think when I went overseas, that was another thing that benefited my game. So every year when we would go to Croatia, um, just like family vacation to see all my grandparents, my, uh, my aunts, uncles, cousins, whatever we would spend, you know, when I was a kid and I didn't have AAU and I didn't have college, we could go for like two months. Mm-hmm. So what we ended up doing is we had a team there, like a local team, and I would just join them. So I would practice with their, with my category, with my age category, and I would just practice with them for the two months that I was there. So it would be, you know, morning, it would be skill work. You would do like guards one side, bigs the other side. But that's the thing I'll never forget is everybody switched. So mm-hmm. guards had to learn post moves, posts had to learn guard, learn guard moves. And that's like where that transition of, you know, positionless basketball kind of started to like hit the hit the wavelengths of the NBA in Europe. And I think that was like the one big difference, because, you know, when you come here during the school year, there's such a stress on, oh, you know, you're the tall guy, you're the center. Like for me, when I was growing up, I was always a center, always up until like. I think AAU, when my coach realized, okay, like he can handle the ball, I ended up being like a 6'6 point guard for us. Hmm. And so that helped me tremendously for my IQ, for my ball handling, for my just overall development. And um, like even in, even in high school, you know, my senior year, I was like our best player. I was all state, whatever. I was still the center. But I played point guard in situations where we had issues bringing the ball up. It was like, okay, do you go take the ball up? Yeah. So like the biggest thing, I think, just kind of to sum that whole thing up, uh, the biggest difference between um, the European way of development and the American way here, you kind of get boxed into a position growing up. You know, they'll put you in point guard, shooting guard, big. And that's just what you are. And the whole your whole career, that's just what you're going to do. But then you get to Europe, even playing at a professional level, you're going to be required to handle the ball more. And it's like, dang, I wasn't ready for this. Like, I never did this in high school. I never did this in college. And you got to start working on it then. So that's why I give credit to Europe. They prepare you for all that stuff. And you're really ready to face any position they might throw your way. Right. So. I mean, you're a you're a six foot nine, six foot ten stretch four. Is that what you would call yourself? But you're like a sharpshooter. I mean, you you shoot the three. Yeah. So it, it's it's funny. Like my my I would say like growing up, most ideally I played the three. I even played the two sometimes. Like in college, I played the two. Um, and like college, I literally played two, three, four. I matched up with guys playing the two, three, or four. Mm-hmm. Um, but like offensively, it was either the three or the four. Um, but honestly, it really doesn't matter for me. I was fortunate as far as like we we're saying with my development that I did so much guard oriented stuff so that my footwork is quick enough that I can keep up with most guards. Mm-hmm. Um, so defensively, like I think I can hold my own against a decent amount of, you know, twos, threes, and then fours has been like the adjustment now when I came to Europe because like in the States, you really don't have those like bruisers that like back you down, back you down, back you down, trying to beat you up physically. Um, it's more so just like athletes or like strong guys who are, you know, they don't really post up like that. Whereas over there, it's like, they'll put you in the rim if they can. Mm-hmm. So that was like the biggest adjustment I think I personally had to make. Um, but yeah, so 
growing up, I always had like a knack for shooting the ball. Um, shooting was kind of like my favorite thing to do. That's what I was best at. Um, and I just shot, shot, shot all the time. So like when other things weren't like going well for me, I knew my shot was going to be there and like I could rely on it. Yeah, it was kind of it was a fortunate situation for me. I think being able to shoot the ball the way that I do opened a lot of doors for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, tough to guard. So we talked about this just briefly, or you mentioned it briefly before, and I'm curious because um, another season in the books, studying being a professional athlete, do you ever think about life after basketball and what you would like to do? And did you go back or have you gone back to finish your three classes of grad school? So I have not. Unfortunately, those three classes that I need to do are all in person. There was really never a great time for me to do that. If I do decide to do that, it'll probably be at the the end of my career. If I really deem it necessary that, you know, I need to finish it or I really want to do it. I was fortunate that I built good relationships with the people in that program. So they told me, hey, listen, whenever you're ready, we're more than welcome to have you. We'll love to help you out and get that degree done. Just let us know. But as far as thinking about life after basketball, you know, it's quarantine now. So I've been overthinking, doing so much self-reflecting on so many things. And I think the biggest thing right now is I'm just unsure of what life is going to be like after this, that like, I'm afraid to start planning for something that I might not know it'll be there. I've talked to my dad. He's been a scout now for 28, 29 years. I think there's a lot of positives to that, but also I don't, like, I I think I've learned a lot from him as far as identifying talent and things like that. I think there's a lot of situations where I've helped him out where, you know, he called me when I was in college. Hey, what do you think of this guy? Or, Hey, what did you think of this guy when you played against him this year? And I gave him my opinion and, you know, sure enough, he actually used it in reports or like there's his like colleagues would call and ask me my opinion and stuff like that. There's there's so many different things. I had a couple of different ideas about potentially doing something as far as college recruiting. I think it's such a unfortunately a dirty business. It really is. I would love to do some type of like service for kids that, you know, they can give me a call something to to kind of guide them through quote unquote the bs so that they can make an educated decision because i think for me growing up obviously you know parents that grew up in croatia we didn't know about the college game like my dad obviously is well connected in basketball but college was never a strong suit it was pro so when we were making the decision we were very like i don't want to say uninformed but we just didn't know a lot of things and so looking back on it, if I knew some things that I knew now, I wonder would things have gone differently or like what would have what what could have changed? And so I've kind of thought about that, like thinking of a way that I can potentially help kids make a better educated decision so they don't end up in situations where they're unhappy or where they need to transfer. And it's not like transferring is like the end all be all. It's just, you know, I think kids kind of want to avoid that. They want to stick at a school for four years if they can or three years, or two years, or whatever it is. So kind of to, to, to wrap that question up, I thought about it, but there's just so much uncertainty at this point that I'm just honestly not sure. Yeah, well, and you still have quite a few years left in you to continue playing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so ideally, I'd like to play, you know, at least another five, six years, and then we'll, we'll see what happens, so. Right, because yeah, because you're 28, I'm 34, so... 
you've got at least six more years. <laughs> that's, that's the plan. That's the plan. I told I told my parents the other day. I was like, at le- I have at least another seven years left in me, and then once that time comes, then we can talk about you know slowing it down and figuring out what's what's life after basketball. Sure. Okay, a couple random questions before we get to the end here. You mentioned it before, uh, your jersey number and why. So you've always worn 13. What did you wear this year? 13. So growing up, I wore, always wore 11. That's what my dad wore. So like playing soccer, I always wore 11. Playing basketball, I always wore 11. And then my junior year in high school, our coach got fired. Or after my sophomore year, our coach got fired. And we got a new varsity coach. And so the summer going into my junior year, we have, you know how you have like summer camps and like summer games and all that stuff. So he ordered us like brand new, like reversible jerseys to play in, in those like leagues. He's handing out the jerseys and whatnot. And I immediately look for number 11. Well, problem is 11 is like a large XL and I'm six, seven. I was like, this can't fit. But like, I'm adamant. I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. Like I can fit. Like I need number 11. Like this is part of, and so finally like coach like, no, you're going to have to take like a bigger number. You can't like, you just can't physically take it. So I was like, okay, what other options do we have? He's like, you have 13. And I'm like 13, you know, growing up, you're always like, oh, it's such an unlucky number. It's a bad number. And at the time, I mean, still to this day, I mean, you can kind of see it in the background. Uh, my favorite player growing up was Steve Nash. So that's like a picture of me with him when I was ball boy. Growing up, he was my favorite player. Like, I loved the way he played with the Suns. I wore 13. Like, to this day, that was like a main reason why I stuck with 13. And I kind of just ran with it ever since. Okay. I'm wondering, have you noticed on planes that sometimes they're doesn't exist a row 13 or in hotels how there's no 13th floor oh my goodness i i didn't really realize that was true until this year it's just kind of creepy i'm like wow people take it really seriously yeah but for you that's your lucky number yeah, yeah, yeah no i've i've had fun with it like people it's always talk about friday the 13th oh what's gonna happen bad to me this year i was like what's great gonna happen to me this day <laughs> <laughs> right i'm gonna drop 30 yeah exactly exactly so um, you never know Okay, so this year when you came overseas, I know it was your first year, but is there any sort of food product that you bring because you know that you can't find it? It's a great question. Uh, I mean, I know a lot of Americans say peanut butter or they say, you know, you can find it over here, but it's different. Hot sauce. Um, but if you didn't bring anything this year, that's fine. I honestly didn't bring anything, but I will say there's two things that I did ask my parents to bring. Number one was oatmeal. Really? Yeah. For whatever reason, I had a very difficult time finding oatmeal, and the one that I did just was not hitting the spot for me. (laughs) So I had my parents send me, like, a box full of oatmeal. I had that, and then the other thing, too, that I did was um, there was, like, an American store right by Magariños, and I went there, and I think I got, like, Lucky Charms once. And I got like barbecue sauce once. <gasps> no, Lucky Charms. That's hilarious. Yeah, was so that, that was like my American fix. That's the Taste of America store, I wonder. Exactly, exactly. It's like on the right-hand side as you're going down like by the fountain. Yes, yes. Oh, man, Lucky Charms. That stuff is like crack. All that cereal, I used to eat it when I was little. And I could just, I could eat the whole box and I wouldn't even get full. <laughs> 100%. So I've I've switched to oatmeal and I promise you there is oatmeal here. I bought some today, (laughs) but it might not be the equivalent of Quakers. 
you know what the thing is though i always did the one that was like in the packaging like the self-made one where you just put the milk put it in the microwave and it's done oh yeah i don't do the physical one where you gotta like sit there and make it no, no, uh, no. <laughs> well you're like that the was... apple cinnamon swirl yeah exactly that exactly that man you probably have to eat like three of those at least to even feel full well so that's the thing that was like just one part of breakfast it would be like oatmeal then i would do like fruit and then i would make like eggs and like sausages or something okay okay um all right uh do you have any nicknames on the court a lot it depends where i'm playing like here in high school my friends decided to americanize the name Duye and called me doug so like it was anything from like doug dougie douglas everything i like responded to and then when i got to college it was more so like double d or like d squared or or d or do yay this year i like amongst like us three like balkan players we did like we called each other like brother that was like the most common thing that we said um in croatian or, in, in like serbian croatian yeah it'd be, how do you say that brate 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 yeah so we were like hey brate brate and then they'll, they'll like immediately turn their head and look okay so we knew we knew immediately like where one was um and what is your favorite move on the court it might just be a catch and shoot i don't know favorite move on the court yeah and just the bread and butter honestly just a catch and shoot three would be my bread and butter if it's like an actual physical move i'd say like an in and out cross but you know i wasn't allowed to do that this year <laughs> <laughs> do you have a uh, favorite spot on the three-point line like corner wing doesn't matter everybody always asks me that it's so funny and i never have an answer for it like i just really don't have a preference but like if you look at like my statistics i have a preference to the left side yeah to the left side okay. but i like never when i'm shooting i never notice like a difference i don't ever feel like okay i'm on the left side i'm gonna make this one or i'm on the right, right. side. Uh, it's shaky Right. So I, it really, I wouldn't say there's a, a, a like a strong point for me. Yeah. Well, you're a shooter. You like every shot you take. I mean. Exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. Yeah. I can understand that. Um, okay. And then if you can pick one, tell us like your, what's your favorite Croatian dish that your mom makes? Or, or you can tell us like, what's the, what's a typical Croatian dish? So honestly, like if I would pick one, like I'll probably end up asking my mom to make it within like the next week or so, just because okay. you mentioned it now. And I would just say like lasagna. Okay. I, I'm not, I don't think it's necessarily Croatian, but like it's a very common and like Mediterranean food because it's Italian. Um, so I would say like her lasagna, I love. Then what else does she do? We take like chevapi from like the serbians like bosnians which is basically like grilled sausages or beef sausages um those are super popular really like those is your mom able to find like everything that she needs at the grocery stores or by your house or is there anything that like yeah yeah we can so um we didn't even realize until maybe four or five years ago that there was a serbian store in the city um like a serbian um grocery store so they literally have like all the products from like serbian croatia like stacked on the shelves and like Mm -hmm. all the local all the local people who are like of descent from over there are coming there and shopping there so like once in a while we'll come get our like fix of like home food there but for the most part we'll stick to like costco whole foods 
and like some other like local places that we have here. Nice. Um, and then this, this last question I usually ask to people that like have gone overseas or whatnot. Um, but for you, you probably don't between English and Spanish or English and Croatian, you probably don't have like a favorite, a favorite Croatian word, you know, because it's just so normal to you. But do you have a word that you learned this year in Spain that you enjoyed how it sounded or uh, you thought was funny? Damn, I wish you would have asked me this. Um, chaval. Chaval. Yeah. So, like, I never knew, like, that was, like, that or there was another word for, like, kid or hey, guy that they would call me. God, it was a running joke that we had with our physios. Oh, it wasn't, like, tío or... Tío, tío, tío. Yeah. And there was another one. Tio Chaval and might have started with a B. I don't know. But those two, we'll take those two for now because it was so funny to me when I first got here or when I first got there and guys started saying Tio in the locker room. I'm like, why are you calling him uncle? Like, what? <laughs> and they're like, oh, no, no. It's like a slang term. Da, da, da. And then they explained it to me. I was like, oh, okay. And then I started using Tio. And then like, ah, see, you like it. <laughs> yeah. Like, what's up, dude? Or what's up, exactly. bro? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then Chaval is just like young guy or yeah, yeah, youngin or whatever. Yeah, Chavales. Que pasa, yeah, Chavales? Exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. Okay. All right. Well, Duye, this has been a pleasure, and I just thank you so much for your time and for sharing so much of your academic and athletic experience. No, my pleasure. I had a great time. I appreciate you having me on. Well, take care. Continue uh, staying safe, and uh, we'll see where you're at next year. Will do. You do the same. Be careful out there. <laughs> Basketball has been a part of Duye's life since the very beginning. It's why he grew up just outside of Chicago and not in split Croatia. It's why he got a full ride to Wisconsin and played on a national championship stage. It even took him as far as the NBA. Basketball has been a huge part of Duye's life. But his schoolwork, assignments, and exams were also part of the ride. He treated both with importance, learned to manage his time, and as a result, graduated with a degree from a great university. I hope you enjoyed this week's show. And if you take anything away from this interview, I hope it's a trip to Croatia. Put it on your list. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, do me a favor by rating the show or leaving a comment. Your support means so much. And that's all for this week. Thank you for listening to Another Season in the Books. I'm Leslie Knight, wishing you a safe and healthy week.